Yeah, you don't even have to get to your seat in I any don't. particular time. Because I can take care of all this in post. Right, unless, of course, you just leave this at the front end so that you know how, or that you let the audience know how raw it is. <laughs> right. We want them to experience the real thing. Myself situated. <clears throat> and this is the real thing with a real American hero. It is. Welcome to Deutero Cannons, episode 21, round two. Round two. Round two. So, total transparency, folks. Uh, some of you might have seen the live stream we did the other night and got as frustrated as we did when every, I don't know, I, I will say episodically, sound just cut out. And so, uh, we just could not bring ourselves to put that on the audio, on the on the podcast platform. So... We are going to attempt to have our conversation again, and I think it will still be fruitful. I've thought a few of a few things since, and so mm -hmm. certainly there'll be some things that we missed from the first one, but I'm sure there will also be some additions as well. <clears throat> uh, with that being said, let's take care of some of the normal housekeeping. So uh, if, you, if and when you do view us on Facebook, please like, share, and comment. On the podcast uh, platforms, which currently we are on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Podbean, please subscribe. Uh, give us a five-star rating, and if it's not going to be five stars, don't even bother. <laughs> and then, of course, com comment, and of course, this will, will broaden our reach. So please uh, share share these with other other people if you find them useful. Um, and yeah, I'm going to get to our topic unless you got something to say. Is there anything you want to say? Well, just again, that this is uh, Deutero Cannons. I'm Justin. With me always is Byron. Uh, Party on, Byron. You know what? No, you're with me. Party on, Justin. <laughs> Party on, Byron. Uh, all right. I missed it. I skipped right over the very first thing on the agenda. All right. So our topic tonight is going to be Christian education and the Great Commission. Now, when I originally put this topic together, I was thinking more along the lines of homeschooling, but I've kind of widened it to, to uh, Christian education. Um, and I think a lot of the principles that, that we'll discuss tonight will be the same. And so here's where this comes from. So I was recently out of town in North Carolina and for some training. And while I was there, I ran into a couple guys that had uh, been on my team in the past. Their names are Josh and Shane. And so we were hanging out at Shane's house one night, having a conversation and uh, Josh challenged Shane and I, uh, as we are both homeschoolers. So, so Shane is my age. He's our age, married three children, excuse me, four children. And, and they homeschool their whole family, much like, you know, we do. Josh is younger and, and he's recently married, just had his first kid. And so, he was suggesting that um, by homeschooling our kids, uh, what he was doing is he was referencing some of the great stories of the Bible, like the Daniels and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's and the Josephs and the Marys and the Esthers, and, and pointing out how these were all uh, teens to young adults mm -hmm. who did great things for the Lord and how by, I guess, homeschooling our children, we're kind of denying them the ability... <coughs> um, to do that. And so I don't totally agree with that and we'll get into that. And, uh, but I'm, I'm going to try and do right by Josh because I think it is also an interesting thing to think about now. Uh, so for those of you who don't know how the sauce is made, I've said before, usually if we have a topic, we text it to each other during the week. Um, we will send each other some scriptures to reference 
And uh, when I brought this up to Justin at church Sunday, I mean, the conversation began <laughs> uh, in earnest. And it was like, okay, pump the brakes, Justin. I'm on, I'm on your side here. And so, uh, <laughs> so this should be fruitful. I think we definitely have found, uh, I mean, I think this education thing is something we're both pretty zealous about. Right, and that Sunday morning was not the first time that we talked about the topic. Oh, yeah, for sure. So um, kind of to sum it up, though, one of the things that, that occurred to me in talking to him is what this seems to be is a is kind of a balancing act between Proverbs 22, 6, which is train your child up in the way they should go, and then this idea of not being in the world, and, and so like the Great Commission. Um, okay, so here we go. First question. How and why did you decide to homeschool your child? How and why did we decide to homeschool? Well, I think that it goes back to um, the way that my, my wife and I were, were both raised. I was homeschooled uh, kindergarten through seventh grade, and my wife was homeschooled seventh grade through twelfth grade. And uh, before we, we ever met each other, that was something that was important to both of us. And then so we, we got together and, uh, you know, even before we were married, I know there were conversations uh, about that and, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to homeschool someday. And that that's part of what I was looking for in a spouse was uh, someone who, who, who valued that. Mm-hmm. Not that it would have been a total deal breaker otherwise, but, <clears throat> and then the, I, I was homeschooled um, really because my parents were heavily influenced by a family back in the late 70s, early 80s, kind of first wave homeschoolers, mm-hmm. um, the, the kind of people who were doing it back when, you know, it was illegal in some states. Oh, really? And there, yeah, there were all sorts of horror stories that, that I heard about growing up about, you know, truant officers and social services and stuff showing up at the, the houses of homeschool families. Yeah, I, I think this is probably one of those things, like, again, Americans don't appreciate, because I'll, I'll tell you, like, there are CC communities uh, in Germany for military families, but but that's it. Like homeschooling is illegal in Germany, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's a freedom that we enjoy that I think we probably. Oh, and there are plenty of people in in the United States who think that it should be illegal. I know there was a prominent article written by some professor uh, at Harvard. I, I think it came out in the Atlantic or uh, the New York, some something. You know, some. Yeah, I read that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, making a case against homeschooling not simply being a viable option but i guess essentially being tantamount to to child abuse Mm -hmm. something that should be illegal but that said uh there was a family that my parents were just majorly influenced by they were impressed by by their family it was a a large family they homeschooled the kids were uh polite knew how to uh interact intergenerationally um were active in church were very smart like clearly they, they were being educated well. That's important. And, and my parents were just so impressed by how that family operated mm-hmm. that that's what they wanted to, that's the direction that they wanted to go with, with their family. And so I, I was, I was brought up in that. Okay. Uh, so for us, we, we got into homeschooling quite by accident. And so, uh, Madeline, our oldest, uh, started kindergarten right at the end of some of my training at, uh, at Fort Bragg, so North Carolina. And so she was halfway through kindergarten when we moved, uh, moved here. And so when we arrived, we hadn't closed on our house yet. And so it was one of those things where we weren't sure what it, you know, 
we've learned this lesson the hard way recently. Nothing's final until we've appraised. I mean, I mean, frankly, it's not your house till you're moving into it, you know? Uh, yeah. And so, you know, it's like, well, what school district are we going to be in? Let's just be on the safe side. We'll put her in a private school. And so we put her in a private Christian school and, um, I got to my unit and then deployed right away. And so in hindsight, so she began having a lot of issues in school where she hadn't in the previous school. And I think a lot of that comes from, uh, First of all, off her her teacher in North Carolina was pretty old school, which we liked. She got here and she had her teacher was kind of a pushover. That didn't help. She didn't have friends and very much wanted them because she's a very social person. Uh, dad's deployed, new setting, no friends, and so. And then I think also academically, it's not that. And I, I had to explain this to this lady later. It's like it's not that she's incapable of learning the things that you're teaching. She just wasn't there yet in the curriculum. She, curriculum she's coming from because sure, she'd be like sure, well, yeah. and, and she doesn't know how to count money it's like yeah you're gonna have to teach her that <laughs> <laughs> so, so and this this is a kindergarten teacher it is tore up that the kindergartner mm-hmm. who just transferred in yes is doesn't exactly have her nickels and dimes in a row well right oh <laughs> snap that's a hot take so it's funny looking back you know it's little things like jessica mentioned this one time where <clears throat> Madeline showed up the first day and like they didn't he- even have a desk set aside like, with her name on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's as if and like they knew she was coming, you know. And so there's just a lot of little things, I think, that where it added up. Um, and so she she had Madeline pretty much pegged as being uh, ADHD and kind of started to try to take matters into her own hands. And I guess she was doing things like putting weighted vests on her and things like Yikes. that. And so. Right. And so uh, I got a phone call one day, and, and she was just like, just, my wife's like, I'm pulling her out. I'm going to homeschool her. And, uh, man, I don't remember. I think it might the intent was for it to be short-term. But uh, in the first year, we just used a um, kind of traditional homeschool curriculum, probably a Becca or something like that. Yeah. And then Jessica starts reading all these books on the classical model, and that's where I really got drawn to it um, just because – the more the more we learn about it, the more I think that there's a reason we learned this way for so long, and and mm-hmm. this this is the way we we should continue to learn, and so uh, we we love it, and so all we're now homeschooling all three kids with with no intent, no intention, no legitimate intent to send them back to public school, although occasionally we get pretty sick <laughs> <laughs> of uh, some attitudes because again our our kids aren't any different I assume than other kids their age where they aren't all that excited about school. Like we're more excited about it than they are. Yeah. It's really not a legitimate thing to, um, expect uh, of children for them to always and everywhere desire all of the things that are good for them as much as we want for them to desire those things. Right. I mean, it would be great if they did. And you know, I was telling the teens this downstairs the other day. It's like, there's one thing I've come to realize in life and it is that, Nobody can make another person live up to their full potential. They've got to want it. And yeah. How do you make them want it? I, I don't know. We're still figuring it out. Now, there are certain thing, certainly things that they can learn if we, like, you're going to learn this, you know, uh, but maybe not to the level they could if they really owned it, I suppose. So next question. I, you know, I have I have two two of each on here, but however many you want to do, but... What are, what are some strengths and weaknesses of homeschooling in your eyes? Or what are some things that you like about it and then some other things that really grind your gears? Okay. Um, 
I think that it all comes down to families. Really, with any any particular model of education, the pros and cons are oftentimes going to come down to families. But if we want to like think more specifically about homeschooling, a pro is that there's so much freedom, and a con is that there's so much freedom. <laughs> Good point. You yes. know, I mean, there's. Well, okay. Speaking as a current public educator, quote. Uh, do, do you guys really not call yourselves teachers? Okay, I call myself a teacher, but there's a, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's all sorts of, uh, I guess, PC jargon mm. for what we self-identify as. Yeah. Like, educator. I, I'll tell you, the, the word educator kind of sends chills, chills up my spine, you know? Yeah, it's like Terminator. Speaking of somebody who's been to Sear school and, you know, I've, you know, experienced what at least in, in, in play pretend what being reeducated can feel like. I, get, I don't know. There's just something about that word. Yeah. And rightfully so. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't actually call myself that. Um, but th- we have plenty of kids who don't show up on time or, you know, sometimes at all, you know, there were kids through this pandemic thing who literally did no work. Now my, I, like I'm blessed to teach in a great school. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. I don't have any plans for doing anything else, um, career wise, teaching wise, um, at this point at all. So the number of kids that we had at my school who did nothing was very, very low compared to our our district and our district was low compared to the rest of the state in terms of non-participation. You're saying this is as a result of the freedom that they were experiencing well, yeah, so so even, I mean, it's not like anything legal really happens to parents if they don't get their kids to school on time. Mm-hmm. So, like, you still see, like, those families who, you know, perpetually have their kids showing up late. Right. So the, the, the thing about, you know, being a homeschooler, you have, you have so much freedom, but then you also have to hold yourself to a high standard right. and you have to self-motivate. Like, that's true with homeschooling, and that's, a, I think, a, a valid critique or, or a valid danger to consider, but it's also true everywhere else because we like, we live in such a society that really nobody's going to make you get up and do anything and you still get your check. Right. Well, I'll tell you when we first started, we had some friends, uh, back in North Carolina that I was back there for training. Just good started homeschooling back here. And so she, this lady was asking me about it and I think she said, so what's your typical day like? I'm like, well, Jessica's approach is that we are schooling our children in lieu of the state doing it, yeah. but these kids need to know how to get up and adhere to a schedule. So exactly. school starts, <clears throat> school starts at eight. And by that, I mean, we get up like we don't do in the Travis house, you know, I guess I'll say I'm not judging anyone, but I feel very strongly about this. So whatever <laughs> we don't do jammy days uh, because in real life you shouldn't be doing jammy days. And so, yeah, like you got to get up and put clothes on. Right. So my kids get up and they put clothes on and Jessica gets up and gets cleaned up and puts makeup on. And when I said she puts makeup on, she's like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm like, look, you ask me what we did. I'm telling you what we do. This is what a day in the Travis house looks like, you know, but, but it's like you're saying we need to get, we're, 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 we are still trying to teach our kids to be adults, you know, and to one day go out and adhere to a schedule and show up presentable and. And, and, and all that stuff manage their time. And so, uh, I, like I think you hit, hit it right on the head. Cause that's, I guess my biggest pet peeve 
is is homeschoolers, <laughs> is homeschool families, and people who do jammy days and say things like, "Oh, we haven't done math in like a week," and it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a bad idea. That's not good, you know? Right? Or, or like I've said before, well. I, I really wish he was better at reading, but he just doesn't like to do it, so I don't make him. It's like, yeah, but you know, the, the more that I, you know, I, I guess like I, I interacted with lots lots of homeschool kids when I was growing up, like in that, you know, uh, especially probably second or third grade on through seventh grade, and then like w we still had homeschool friends after that, but um, because I was involved in sports and and all of that with this, in the school I went to, we, we just didn't see those those folks so much anymore. So like I wasn't around parents of those kids as much or you know involved in adult conversations i was off in the woods playing with the kids mm -hmm. you know that that sort of thing is, as can be ex expected but i think that all those families that i grew up were were pretty you know straight laced conservative like nose to the grindstone type families like building their own houses yeah you know type of people even yeah. though they'd never done it before mm -hmm. you know out of wood that they harvested off of their own land well, you know like like that kind of people but n now that i'm i'm kind of in some other homes I've had some other homeschool experiences from a parental perspective and seeing that it's like there's a, a larger diversity of homeschool families now maybe right. than, than when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So what I see is that there's the same variety of people who are homeschoolers as you have for the most part and in, in yeah. definitely private education, but also public education to a decent extent. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because we have, you know, we use the word homeschool community when it comes to the, to our, our group or co-op as they call, I think they call it other places. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we're always talking to each other about this, Jessica and I are, where it's like, this is so frustrating because this is supposed to be a community, meaning we all signed up for this program and agreed to adhere to the same curriculum and require the same things of our kids. And like when she was directing a uh, challenge, which for those viewing at home is kind of like middle school level in this program. You know, she's got kids showing up. And the theory in this program, by the way, again, for those viewing at home, is when you come together once a week, the parent that volunteers uh, or is the, the uh, is at standing at the front of the classroom, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm speaking this way for a reason, we call them the tutor. They're there to drill subjects and explain maybe larger concepts, but you, the parent, are still the teacher. Yeah. And so she has kids come to class and, you know, they'll start, they'll, they'll uh, set out to do Latin or whatever. And they're like, my mom says I don't have to do that, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, why are you here then? You know? Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. So is there any reason, any part of your decision to homeschool, uh, your daughter, does that come from, uh, a desire to shield her from the world? You know, possibly i mean in in part i could just say yes but i i think it's more what we want to promote rather than what we want to uh eliminate or avoid okay because like the, the, there there are so many good things and good opportunities that, that are that are opened up by by homeschooling and and all of that all of that freedom uh again which can be used in a positive way um well what about and you know, I, I said this is about Christian education. So, yeah. like, you you attended a Christian school. I did. Yeah. Do you think any of that was uh, as a result of your parents' desire to shield you from more worldly things? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um. But, but you know, Christian schools have all the same worldly problems. As, oh yeah. 
because, I mean, you know, it's it's still it's still the world. That's why I think that like the, the isolation argument. I mean, yeah, yeah, it it can it can work, but you really can't I isolate. I, I don't think Mm-mm. completely because. I mean, sin starts in the heart, right? And you can't isolate from yourself, mm-hmm. even though there may be some public health experts who would have advised to that effect. Well, you know, it's like we have so many Christian colleges, uh, you know, church. I'll speak Church of Christ schools specifically. Um, I mean, I have friends that, as is is the norm in in this, we'll call it denomination for the sake of argument here, who attend these schools, and so I know for a fact there's still issues with drinking there. There's still issues with out of marriage. Uh, you know, births, you know, that, that mm-hmm. are happening in these Christian schools. I yeah. mean, it's because, uh, despite the word Christian being painted on the door, there's still, the world still gets in. And I yeah, think, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but back to the, <clears throat> like the, the isolation thing, just like one, one example. Um, it's not like we think that school food will malnourish her, our, our, our daughter to the extent that, you know, she just wastes away. But think about like the difference between the average school, public school lunch and home cooked meal, Mm -hmm. you know, of eggs and fruit and vegetables that you just gathered yourself. Right. You know, like that, like that's, that's more of what we, we want for her Mm -hmm. both dietarily and academically figuratively and spiritually. Mm hmm. You know, it's it's like that's a really good, that's a good image analogy. of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I've said this before, and I, I don't think any uh, government educator, apart from maybe yourself, I'm sure there are plenty that would would agree to this, but to a certain extent, like, don't they need some of us to homeschool? I mean, they're always complaining about teacher-to-student ratios, mm-hmm. or would we just keep cramming them in? Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't know that, statistically speaking, that homeschoolers are, are really having that big of an impact at this point mm-hmm. on the, the number of bodies and seats, so to speak. Well, I guess the other part of this argument that I thought about, you, you called it before a uh, individual educational plan. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, isn't that what you're getting in homeschooling? Shouldn't we be yeah, absolutely. in favor of that? Yeah, so l- l- let me go go back to that because that, that, w- that was something that we talked about the other night. Um, a, a lot of research has been done educational research uh, showing that individual education is the the, the way to go. Mm-hmm. And so there are all sorts of programs, initiatives, trainings, seminars, yada, 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 that all are trying to either teach or, or retrain teachers into recognizing the importance of that pedagogical uh, mode, mm-hmm. I, I guess you could say. And whenever I hear people talking about that, like, oh, you know, education has got to be individualized. I'm like, man, like homeschoolers do that by default. Right. Like that's like the whole, the whole design. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's funny because I think about that with, you know, in the military, we'll have these schools that we attend and it's very much you're training the masses. Yeah. But then there's also other settings where we have small groups. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and that's where the best learning occurs. And so, again, I think if if we're being honest about the quality of education we're giving kids, we, we, we would be in favor of something like that. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess at the end of the day, one thing we need to say here, cause, I, uh, we, we should, we should all just care that kids are being educated and they're getting a quality education, yeah, absolutely. you know? And so, uh, 
that all that to say there's no judgment on our part at least as to how how your family decides to uh educate their kids in fact it's funny because there's always all these kind of stereotypes about homeschoolers like homeschoolers not being socialized and stuff we were <laughs> we were in the uh line at the grocery store one time and, and uh you got the kids with you in the middle of the day, in the middle of school week. And like, I never would think to ask this, but you, it, this happened a couple of times where it's like kid, old ladies will be like, and how come you're not in school? And they'll be like, we're homeschooled. And, uh, so I guess one time it happened, you know, so same thing, right? How come you're not in school? And the kids are like, well, we're homeschooled. And, and the lady was just got like real uncomfortable and awkward. And, uh, Jessica was telling me about it, about it afterwards. I'm like, <laughs> you know, the awkward homeschool kid is kind of like, well, who's awkward now, you know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, the, the, the educational decisions you make for your family are, are really nobody's business, I, I suppose. Um, right. So going back to the scripture that, that you cited, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart far from it. Okay. So it's okay to get help with training your child up, but, uh, like educational research also shows that the biggest factor in determining emergent literacy, for example, which um, is basically being a proficient reader, like reading on level, mm-hmm. being functionally literate, the the biggest um, the biggest factor is parental involvement before kids ever go to school in the first place. Right. Well, and and I think that again, when we think about that passage, training your child up, it it depending on which which uh translation you use but we'll use i think that's the king james right training your child up like training your child that you might send them elsewhere to be educated but it's your job to train them right and so you know even the so (laughs) it's kind of funny because i've got my my foot in in both camps so to speak and then i've also got a a private school background Mm -hmm. as well and and I, i taught for the better part of a year in a private school right after i finished out my degree um and I, I've seen really great families homeschool. I've seen really great families send their kids to private school, and I've seen really great families send their kids to public school. And I've seen people have good reasons mm-hmm. for, for for those things. But you know, the the consistent thing across the board: good homeschooler, good private school kid, good public school kid. It's typically uh, the the parents the yeah just the, the 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 family as a whole and and when when it's not a good situation educationally usually it's all it also has something to do with the parents now th- there are exceptions these are not like totally fail pr- foolproof uh observations there are exceptions of course you know like i see kids all the time in public school who have very very difficult home backgrounds Mm -hmm. things that they go home to every day that um are are really really devastating but they they do the best they can they they work hard and you know some rise above those circumstances right so and and there are absolutely kids that are being homeschooled that are essentially victims of neglect oh yeah absolutely yeah and look i've had i've had to do a whole lot of splaining about homeschooling where I where I teach because in Logan County Kentucky usually when someone says hey I'm homeschooled that means not schooled right so like I like I have to talk about my experience mm-hmm. and the fact that my mom was actually a certified teacher uh-huh. 
licensed, certified the whole nine yards um, when she was teaching me. Not that that's a, a requirement, you know, just showing, you know, something that's unexpected to, to those teachers and, mm-hmm. and telling them about some of the educational experiences that, that, that I had, the way that my mom taught me, um, the way that I, I was ahead than when I went into a private school. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I was going to say something. I can't remember what it was. Okay. Uh, let's move on here. So that being said, let's, let's talk a little bit about, and uh, as I said before, I want to try and give Josh his due and, and kind of make the argument that he was making. Um, and so what I wanted to do is go through some of these Bible characters and give you some, some of the information that I found, uh, as it pertains to their age when, when they did the great things that we know of them to have done. Yeah. Sounds good. And so, uh, I guess the, the disclaimer is that for a lot of these folks, we don't honestly know their exact ages. Um, so there's a lot of speculation here. There's somewhere we know what their ages are at certain points, but not at others. And so we're kind of inferring and doing some math and, and such. So Okay. And so, um, his, his argument is essentially that perhaps by homeschooling rather than sending kids into a traditional school or a uh, public school, that it's cutting them off from ways that God would want them to be interacting with the world. Right. Cause we're called to be in the world, right? Right. Yes. Okay. So first one I'm going to start with is Joseph. <clears throat> so we know that Joseph was the youngest of 12. Well, not counting Benjamin at the time he was the youngest, right? Yes. Yes. And then, then there was, then there was Benjamin. Yeah. Benjamin. Okay. And so when we look at jo- Genesis 37 two, so this is, um, you know, while he's serving in the field, like this is just after he ratted out his brothers, <laughs> he, he's 17 years old. And so this, and this is, so this is prior till he, prior to him making the trek to Shechem to find his brothers on his own, which, uh, I forget where he started, but I've, I've kind of did a map study of that before. Like this was no little thing that this kid's wandering through the desert by himself. But so, it sounds like he's also not just, you know, a kid. Right. So 17 ish teen, almost adult. Right. Like right. old enough to be a Marine. Correct. Uh, with a parent parental waiver. <laughs> so Genesis 41, Genesis 41, 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. So we, we fast forwarded and I'm going to try going to backtrack a little bit here. So Genesis 41, 46, Gen- Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. In Genesis 41, 1, he's, it's, uh, he spent two years in prison after interpreting the cupbearer and baker's dreams. So that puts us at 28-ish, right? So he gets out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Two years prior to that, he had interpreted the baker and the cupbearer's dream, but the cupbearer forgot about him, yeah. right? Unknown amount of time in prison before that, and then unknown amount of time in service to Potiphar before that. So... Uh, the folks that I was looking at, I was going to say scholars and historians. I don't know. People on the internet. Spec- That's the same thing, right? Right. Speculate that he was sold into slavery in his late teens to early 20s, potentially. That sounds about right. So, teenager. Yeah. Potentially, young adult. Um, next, I want to move on to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Uh, so, let's go to Daniel 1, 3 through 7. Oh, I'm in Daniel. Look at that. Do you think you could add some more like page turning sounds in post production? <laughs> well, I, I wrote out a lot of these notes, and, and man, we've already talked a lot. Mostly just because I didn't want to, I didn't want to spend too much time because you could really get in the weeds on a lot of this stuff. In fact, I had some highlighted notes about when we talk about Mary that I I don't know that we'll get to them 
because there were some things in this research. This was actually a secular historian. There's some things mm-hmm. she said that really grinds my gears, but <laughs> like I said. Uh, all right, so Jan- Daniel 1, 3 through 7, if you'd like to read that. Daniel 1, okay, 3 through 7. Yeah, I got it. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision for the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. All right. So according to the stuff I was reading, Daniel, and I would assume the other three were roughly 12 around the time of the exile. Um, I don't know that the age matters so much. I think the point is more that these three weren't born in Babylon. They were, they were exiled from Judah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I found this on the internet. It says, Daniel was likely between the ages of 12 and 15. The phrase used to describe Daniel and his friends is young men, which we just saw there. It's a word that usually refers to boys ages 12 to 14. Daniel Montgomery, a scholar, notes, according to Plato, the education of Persian youths began in their 14th year, and it is reasonable to assume that the Babylonians commenced the training of young people at about the same age as the Persians. Daniel then would likely have been about 14 or 15 years of age when he was taken into captivity and began his training. Nebuchadnezzar wanted boys at a teachable age, uh, teachable ages, so, uh, so they would be able to be able and willing to learn new things. Okay, so going off of that so maybe or easily indoctrinated right uh you know and, and this is something you mentioned the other night and, and josh had mentioned when we were talking about this too like when he's he's talking about the challenges that these young people are overcoming like among other things uh i believe all signs in point to these men being eunuchs as well mm-hmm. right so i mean imagine that the hardship that and this is one of the points he was making like imagine the hardship that these guys were overcoming being exiled to this other land being forced to learn this other, you know, education and then having their manhood essentially taken from them. Um, I mean, that, that is significant. I like, I, I will give you that. And is that the effect that public education has? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We want to make sure our kids are eunuchs like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego so they can shine for God. Well, men are marrying less these days, you know? So Yeah. <laughs> All right, so between 12 and 15, so again, okay, potentially teens. Uh, now, I think we would have to say, though, that this is this is when they're exiled and being educated. I don't know if there's anything that, that it, it would seem the fiery furnace and the lion's den came later. Right. Um, I, I, I want to say I read something that said that they were at least adults by then, like full-fledged adults when, when those things happened. Excuse me. Okay, Good. got it. All right, Esther. All right, let's turn to Esther 2. Esther 2. Yeah, we got to go back the other way. We do. Which, um, I said I was going chronologically, but I suppose these two kind of occurred concurrently. 
right? Because this is during the exile as well. Right, yeah. Um, you know, I, I should be more solid on, on the timeline of like how Esther fits in, but obviously they're not in Israel. Right, because uh, Babylon falls to Persia. Yeah, I'm trying to remember yeah. the timeline song. So this is <laughs> so this is under Xerxes. Right. So that's Persian rule. Yes. Um, and I forget Persia falls to there's a Persia falls to Babylon. Yeah, because I think Darius was a Persian. Well, Darius was a Mede. Oh, that's right. Then, but it was like the Medo Persians. Right. So so maybe it's the other way. Persia falls to Babylon. I'm trying to remember the timeline song. Darius is definitely after Nebuchadnezzar. Right. Yeah, you're yeah. correct. Yep. I can hear the VeggieTales song in my head. <laughs> Good King Darius. Okay, so sources say that Esther was 14, but I find no references to back that up. I just found that in several places that I that I was looking. So let's just read a couple verses here to, that we can, and these are the things that we can say for sure. So one through four, it says, later when King Xerxes, oh, by the way, let me back up. Uh, for For those listening at home, Esther is only 10 chapters long, by the way. Uh, we listened to it in the car over the course of two days, driving back and forth to the gym. So I think it's like a 15-minute, 20-minute drive to the gym. So, mm -hmm. you know, 20, 40, 60, 80. So an hour and a half, you can listen to all of Esther. Yeah. Um, that being said, verse 2, this is just after uh, Xerxes is, he's basically disciplined or done away with the, the previous queen, uh, Vashti. Vashti, right. And so now he's looking for a new queen. So in Esther 2, one, I, I guess if you want any further details, you need to, to listen to it or read it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let, us, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of this realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who uh, who pleases the king sorry, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. We're going to jump up to seven. It says Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So, as I said before, we don't know anybody, a lot of these folks, we don't know their exact ages. I think the only thing we do know about Esther is that she was a virgin and that she was a young woman. Now, when we talk about Mary, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit. Or I'm, I'm, well, shoot, I'm talking about it now. But, <laughs> uh, most women, in, in, at least, so now we're getting into the, into the uh, first century. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming this was the case prior to that, most of the history prior to that. Um, once women were of age, you know, post-puberty, they would then be married off and start having children. And so that was usually around the ages of like 12 to 14. And so... If w w would they get married as 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 young as tw twelve? Probably not. Maybe not twelve. Yeah. But um, I, it seems like I, I've heard about though, like with arranged marriages, like y you know how with Joseph and Mary, they were they were betrothed. Betrothed. Yeah. But I mean, it it was it was essentially unconsummated marriage, mm -hmm. and like they they didn't they didn't live together, but it was it was a legal marriage. 
that was then to be like consummated and turn into, you know, full blown marriage. Once she was of age. Right. 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 Whenever, whenever that happened to be. So my point is, I think we can infer that if she was a virgin, a young woman and a virgin, then she could be in that 12 to 14 year old range when mm-hmm. this occurred, potentially. Uh, I mean, I suppose by virtue of her being in captivity, maybe she was, that's why she was a virgin. Although typically when women fall into captivity, you know, that's one of the first things that goes, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. But then you have, you have Mordecai here who's taken her, you know, as, as his own daughter and I don't know, just hats off to Mordecai. Yeah. Really good guy. Well, and, and maybe that's why maybe, maybe he's protected her from that. Right. Or, or yeah. That's, that, that's really what I, what I meant. Either way, we'll give it, we'll give Josh the benefit of the doubt here. So young woman, 12 to 14, which again, like my, my daughter's 13, right? So to his credit, there, there's, you know, there's maybe there's something there. Yeah. And so how long did they, uh, how long did they keep them in the harem before they brought them before the king? Cause it, it was, I, it, I, it I was a decent there, yeah, stretch of time. Yeah. There's a lot of beauty treatments and such that went on. I'm probably, probably teaching on how to conduct yourself before the king. You know, I don't right. know if it's like years and years and years. It's not years and years, but, but it seems like it was more than just a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I know it's in here, but I'm not putting my finger on it. It was, it wasn't in, uh, what you, what you read. Um, right. And, and I guess when, when, it Oh yeah, yeah. Here you go. It's in, in verse 12, each young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations. Okay. Uh, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women's women. So it was, hmm. it was like cosmetology school, apparently, <laughs> except like all the cosmetology is done to you, to yourself. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and again, if we fast forward here to when she actually goes before Xerxes to plead her case to save the Jews, again, this maybe that was a few a few years later. But again, giving giving uh, Josh the benefit of the doubt, uh, probably still in her teens. Yeah. All right. David. I got David and then Mary, and then we'll move on with the, the conversation here. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read this to you. I found this, this uh, uh, resource online about David. It says, in 1040 BC, David was born in Bethlehem. King Saul was probably 43. His son Jonathan was probably 29, and Samuel was 30. How do we know? 2 Samuel 5.4 states that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. David died in 970 BC, the year Solomon ascended to the throne. If he reigned 40 years, his reign began in 1010 BC. If he was 30 years old, then he began to reign in 1010 BC. He was born in 1040 BC. I don't know if, this, if any of this makes sense when you're reading it. <laughs> I'm going to skip to this part. Jesse had eight sons, of which is the, the oldest three were in Saul's army when Goliath issued his challenge. Okay, so three sons in, in the army when during Goliath. Numbers 1, 3. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, and this is what we're talking about. How old was David when he killed Goliath, by the way? Numbers 1, 3, 20, and 26, 2 say a man may enter military service at 20. So the youngest of Jesse's three eldest sons was probably at least 20. If Jesse's wife had a child every year, then the other two could be no younger than 21 and 22. On this assumption, David's other brothers could have been no older than 19, 18, 17, and 16. Therefore, David could not have been older than 15 when Goliath issued his challenge. 
course, David had two sisters, Zeruiah and Abigail. If they were older than David, then David could not have been older than 13 when Goliath made his challenge. So, when Goliath issued his challenge, David cannot have been older than 15, but he might have been 13 or even younger. Using the ages of 13 through 15, which is the probable minimum age because of, at 13 David would just barely have attained to manhood, David killed Goliath around 1027 to 1025 BC. Samuel anointed David before them. Since David was already attending to sheep and fending off lions and bears before this, his anointing and duel with Goliath probably occurred around the year 1025 when David was 15 years old. So let's go on the high end then. So David's maybe 15 when he kills Goliath. Yeah, I mean, that, I, that seems reasonable. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> that's sure. Pretty, it's a pretty big deal, you know. So the reason that, I mean, so if Owen, when he's 15, doesn't kill a giant or at least like a lion or a, or a bear or something, it will be because you homeschooled him. <laughs> right. That's that is that the is that the argument? I'm putting it on a checklist now. He's going to do it. <laughs> well, but I mean, let's think about that. And this is a point Josh made. I mean, Goliath or no Goliath, thirteen-year-old kid out tending sheep, killing off killing bears and lions. Yeah, I mean that's significant. That's more than uh, the average thirteen-year-old probably does these days. Right. However, if you. If, <laughs> If if you go to the Amish community, I would say that the thirteen year olds are probably a little bit more capable than the average, uh, even homeschooled thirteen year old. Yeah, I would agree. So I, I think it has everything to do with tr um, upbringing, training, expectation. Well, and and this is where the three of us, well, the four of us, frankly, well, hold on, two, four, because granted, by the way, I, I failed to mention this. So Josh is standing there by himself arguing with me and my wife and Shane and his <laughs> wife. So good on you for that, Joshua. Uh, he sounds like a good guy. He is a good guy. Um, and so, and this is something that I would say the two, four, five, six of us all agree on. Heck, even Misty agrees with this. We all agree that young people are capable of far more than we require of them in the modern world. Yeah, yeah. Right? As long as you use like the we pretty loosely. Yeah. I said the the six of us, to inc to include Misty seven. Right, right. What? Well, yeah. Oh, oh uh, you're saying the second we? Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the second we. Like what society requires of them? Yeah. Sorry, vague pronoun reference. <laughs> well, I mean, there are probably I could probably require more of my children, right? Uh, there don't seem to be any lions and bears at hand currently, though. We so. did have a bear come through Dot like a year and a half ago. Really? Yeah. And you didn't wrestle it. Well, I mean, I found out about it too late. If it was Tennessee, you'd have to grin it to death. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Davy Crockett reference. Okay. Yeah, I caught it. All right. Just making sure. <laughs> all right. So. Um, all right. So, Mary. Here's something. Uh, okay. Let me get to what I was saying. Well, I already mentioned that, right? So, 12 to 14, right? They start having children. And so, it's... it's. Let me read right here. Um... Where is it? It's basically what I was just discussing where young women, it was just after puberty. Where is this? Mm -mm. Okay. In Jewish culture during the first century BC, women typically married at about the same age as other women throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. 
i.e. in their mid-teenage years. Jewish men, however, seem to have generally married younger than their Greek and Roman contemporaries. The Greek philosopher Sir Aristotle states that in his Politics 1335a that 18 is the ideal age for a bride and 37 is the ideal age for a groom. Hmm, that's not what I was trying to read. That's probably not too far off, though. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, <laughs> my point was what I said earlier, where essentially uh, once they've they've passed puberty, women tend to be betrothed to somebody and, and having... If they weren't already betrothed, they tend to be, be having babies uh, shortly thereafter. So I think the argument could be made that, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, maybe, probably maybe a little older, that Mary gave birth to the Son of God. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's likely like 14 to 16, probably. Um, I wanted to mention something here. So again, I told you, this is a secular historian. She says, the original Hebrew text of this passage, uh, she's talking about the book of Isaiah. Okay, let me read this whole thing. It has been traditionally assumed that based on the story of the virgin birth that Jesus was the eldest of all his siblings. The story of the virgin birth, however, was most likely made up by early Christians in effort to fulfill a mainstream version of a prophecy found in the book of Isaiah. This is some of the stuff that I don't agree with. She's saying that the virgin birth is made up because we've misinterpreted Isaiah. The original Hebrew text of this passage states that a young woman is with child and will bear a son. In the Greek Septuagint, however, the Hebrew word alma, meaning young woman, is mistranslated as the Greek word parthenos, which means young woman, but usually means virgin. The prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 is not about the Messiah either, but rather about the birth of King Hezekiah of Judah. I guess what I'm wondering is, is that word young woman the same as the one used for Esther? Where Esther is both a young woman and a virgin. Oh yeah, um, you, know? you know, yeah. I'm I'm not sure, but that that would be pretty easy to find out. Yeah, um, just with a uh, an interlinear text. All right. So <clears throat> all that being said, so we've just reviewed all these great Bible characters um, who were young people, either teenagers or young adults, when they did some pretty uh, impressive things. So I have an aside, but I was wondering if you have any overall comments before and i'm not ready to argue yet just (laughs) any overall thoughts yeah overall thoughts um for the most part we see that that these these teens slash young adults were in difficult circumstances that their parents had not thrown them into like you know no parent throws their kid into exile right so it's it's tough to draw an analogy there um you know especially with like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Um, the same with Esther. I mean, you know, Mordecai was doing the best that he could, but he didn't say, hey, Xerxes, have her. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that w- whenever you have extraordinarily trying circumstances, there are going to be examples of extraordinary faith even among young people. Right. And so I, d- I don't take from that any any type of directive to uh, bring about needless hardship. Um, but I, I'm also not like in favor of like like isolating or or insulating uh, children from difficulty. Right. You know, I mean, we do need to do that. But the question is like, like what difficulties are those? Um, and I don't know, but that's, that, that's something that, that families have to um, figure out, you know, it's, it's one, it's one thing for 
Now, it's not that I think that like all public or private schools are necessarily lion's dens, but it's one thing, like let's say that one in a particular place or a particular grade where a kid's having trouble, you know, like, like Maddie was, mm-hmm. you know, like, like you mentioned. So let's say that's a lion's den, kind of. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's one, it's one thing when the evil king throws you in the lion's den, and it's another thing when it's your parents. Right. That's a good point. Thanks. Well, and you know, you're, you're talking about um, not, not, not being in favor of, what did you say, isolating them from hardship? <laughs> yeah, or insulating, insulating. maybe maybe may a better word. Either way, and this is a little foreshadowing of my lessons, <clears throat> my message tomorrow, but you know, James 1, 2 says, Consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And a point I'm going to make tomorrow, um, so I don't think it matters if I say it now, is... You know, the United States in 2021, like what trials are most kids facing? I'm not saying there aren't any, but there are many who aren't aren't enduring, I would say, trials. They're not enduring trials. There might be some hardships here and there, but there are many who are not enduring, enduring trials. And so... Um, yeah, like that could be a whole other podcast. Right, but to your point, if we aren't making things difficult, if we aren't testing them, we aren't challenging them, then they're not developing the perseverance. And... Uh, right which might, what I think, according to this passage, means that they are not mature, they're not complete, right? Right. <clears throat> but, but if we know that it's, it's good for, um, for education to be individual, then it makes more sense that an attentive parent is perhaps be- a thoughtful, intentional parent may be best suited to recognize the challenges that are age and developmentally appropriate okay i agree with that yeah yeah well and frankly (laughs) (laughs) i had my boys so there's a telephone pole out the back behind our house i call it the telephone pole of woe (laughs) that's an army thing but my kids know what it is i say telephone pole of woe go and they know they got to run out to it What, what do they do when they get there they run back. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, I, I don't know, like burpees, pull-ups, push-ups. Oh, uh, well, so if I catch them not running like I did today, they do lunges back. Ooh. Right. My point is, you know, if that's the type of hardship you want to e- expose your parents to, like, there are very few other adults in your life who can make your kids do stuff like that, and it's not going to get some side-eye or something, <laughs> you know? Maybe a football coach or something. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I would be opposed to, like, a kindergarten teacher doing something like that, I suppose. <laughs> All right, so here's my aside. <clears throat> so we see these young people doing good in the eyes of God, and in some cases doing good deeds. And then we see these leaders honoring God for it. So I'll give you a couple examples. Daniel 3.28, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. <clears throat> Daniel six twenty-five through 27 Then King Darius wrote to all the <laughs> nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and, fear and reverence the god of Daniel, for he is the living god and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. 
He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And then finally, Genesis 41, 39 through 40. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only res- respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Do you know what this reminds me of? What does it remind you of? I feel like you know. Maybe? <laughs> no? In the same way, sorry, Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Yep. We got a couple others. First Peter two twelve. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then Titus seven through nine. <clears throat> and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. And so when I hear these New Testament passages, like if you hear them isolated from the Old Testament, like, I don't know, maybe you're a first century Greek Christian, yeah. right? Yeah. Convert. This might just seem like good advice. but I <clears throat> Which think, it is. Which it is. But when you hear it in the context of the Old Testament, um, I don't know, I just think it's interesting. It gives you new insight because you, you, you see this advice where, where it's played out. We see these people who exiled to egypt and just tries to do right tries to he he works for the lord and not for men and he moves up in potiphar's house he ends up running the jail and he ends up running egypt right you know you look at uh again daniel shadrach meshach abednego again they they just despite their circumstances did right did what the lord wanted them to do and and again they end up being in these high places of, of prominence and so um i don't know i just thought that it was interesting yeah yeah no do you also <laughs> think that's it? yeah yeah I, I well i thought a question was coming oh, so sorry okay. so like i was given space for the question do you think it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> there's my question yeah no I, I i do think it's interesting um all, all of those stories from the old testament uh you know stories have a way of giving us a, a way of looking at life mm-hmm and and looking at the world and so you're you're right about the needing to look at the old testament and the 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 new testament together because because that that's what you see um like in those those letters that are didactic in nature Mm -hmm. you see realizations inspired by the holy spirit that can also be obvious from just the narratives that we get right in 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 the old testament well and, and clearly this concept comes from God, right? But um, this is certainly a truth that has carried over from the old covenant into the new covenant. But I I guess to me, it's like in a very practical way, because I mean, I think about that, that idea that Jesus said to um, the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation comes from the Jews, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, isn't this like literally what we're kind of saying here? Like if you find yourself in a trial uh, do these things that we've talked about here. Let your light shine before men. Live such good lives that the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, may see your good deeds. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. Like when they're trying to teach you, I don't know, Babylonian, be really good at Babylonian, you know? Yeah. And, and what are they going to say about you? And so, um, 
I guess back to the salvation comes from the Jews. Like this was just, this is just how, how the Jews conducted themselves. And so, um, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to promote like the Judaizers necessarily. Right. But then there's, there's just, there, there were good teachings from the old Testament that carried over, uh, because truth is truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and I wonder, this is just wondering, I've wondered before if there's any significance in the teachers of the law being called the teachers of the law as opposed to something else, because we know that there's more in the old Testament besides law. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, we know, we know that they, they missed, they missed it. Mm-hmm. They missed some crucial plot points, right? so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if they were, it's because it's not like the, the law is, is, is wrong or, or bad, you know, far to the far to the contrary but if if you have this whole written uh well th- th- this whole written thing that, that that's from the lord and and you only focus on one part of it to the detriment or the neglect of other things like maybe you don't actually interpret the law lawfully mm-hmm. because that's that's exactly what paul said mm-hmm. about the pharisees and about the judaizers mm-hmm. well it's like well you know like the law is good if you use it lawfully right but just because like you are appealing to the law or, cl- or claiming to be a follower of the law doesn't mean that you're actually doing it hmm. rightly. Right. And I would say that you have to have the prophecies. You have to have the stories mm-hmm. to, to, to get the, to, to recognize the witness of God across as many levels as possible. Right. All right. So aside complete back on track. <laughs> so we talked before about how we all agree yes that that uh kids are capable of much more at a far younger age than we require of them in our current society and so like this idea that i think that w- what josh is getting at this idea of young people being doing great things <clears throat> um i mean it's not that it, this was commonplace in our own society not too long ago we've mentioned before we talked about laura Ingalls wild wilder um, and I just looked it up to make sure. So she got her t- teaching certificate and began teaching at 15 years of age. 15. Yeah. But there are 15-year-olds who are capable of that. Right. I I think there are certainly girls that are capable, well, 15, girls or boys, who are capable of it. And I think it, it really comes down to what we were talking about before. It's a matter of, but are are they equipped at this right. point? Yeah. Um, and, and and their lack of, of, of equipping... Uh, Man, like, is that a social construct? Well, we just sure, don't. We don't. Sure. Re- we don't require it of them. You know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's pretty prevalent that a parent is being a good parent to the extent that the parent gives the kid what the kid wants when the kid wants it, and insulates the kid from things that the kid doesn't want to do. Mm. <laughs> is this is this the devil on your shoulder talking right now? Well, no, I'm I'm just saying like that's it's an observation that I've run into plenty of people who act like that. Sometimes it's it's actually stated. Mm-hmm. I've had people say that to me. Right. Well, you know, I just want to give him everything he wants because if I don't He'll resent me when he's older. Yeah, right. I don't want him to miss out. Right. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. All well, right. I gotcha. I mean, there are certain th- certainly things that are, you know, I've heard people say like chores or slavery or something like that, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But, but there are also things structurally like a 14 year old, 15 year old girl couldn't teach legally right now in our society. Right. And am I missing something? No, but I mean, again, like, like if, if you like, I have known some incredible, I mean, when I was young and on through today, like I've known mid teenage gals who are incredibly capable right. of a lot of things, probably including teaching any kid younger than herself. Well, I agree. I'm just saying we don't see a Laura Ingalls Wilder today. Somebody who is teaching school for money at 15 years of age. Yeah, probably not. I mean, not in the United States, at least. Right. Not in the developed Western world. And so what I'm saying is, is some of this, um, I don't know, arresting of the development of our youth. Oh, by by the way, arrested development is a really good term for a lot of the negative things that we're we're talking about here. I agree. And so I'd say a lot of that arrested development that we see in our youth is... It's just a result of how our society is structured now uh, as compared to, you know, Laura Ingalls' pioneer times. I don't know. Is that pioneer times? I mean, that, yeah, it really wasn't all that long ago. Well, the thing is, there, there's been a and this is probably a whole whole other topic that we really can't get into. But the uh, the way that the, the Victorians began to um, idealize youth. Mm-hmm. And I think that. That what we see with that, like kind of this prolongation of childhood is just a, a Victorian carryover. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I, uh, man, a couple election cycles ago, Newt Gingrich was one of the candidates and, uh, he said something I really liked that I, I had considered. <clears throat> and basically his point was like, some of our child labor laws are kind of silly now because we don't have sweatshops. Right. And that's what a lot of these were put in place, like designed to, to protect. Yeah. Uh, and so we have these kids that are dropping out of school and they might be less because, because they don't like school among other things and yeah. they might be less inclined to do the, the nefarious things that they were doing if they could work. Sure. Yeah. And so why not let kids work younger? Um, and I think he, he, some of the stuff he talked about even pertain to if your dad owns a business, mm-hmm. like I know there are child labor laws surrounding, uh, your, you know, your, even your own children working in your store, like they can only work a certain number of hours and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and again, as long as they're not truant, why does that matter? You know? Right. What? How, how are you harming them? Right. Um, okay. So questions. I got a bunch of questions here. <laughs> so we agree children are capable much more at a younger age. What are your initial objections to the idea that by using Christian education, you aren't allowing your child the opportunity to be a David or an Esther? <clears throat> Because I am sinful and you're sinful and our, our children are are sinful. I mean, there, there's no there's no getting away from the world in, in that sense. You know, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I mean, that's true scripturally. And I can tell you from experience that Christian schools, or at least all the ones that I've known about and attended or, or taught at, have had plenty of sin yeah so i mean it's and 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 there really are some christian schools out there maybe a lot of them who are doing a better job at education than you know the the average public school 
But I can tell you that not every Christian school is actually doing better at educating than all public schools. Right. Well, and I think the same can be said of, of homeschool communities. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and here's the thing, particularly, particularly in the military, I would say, uh, I mean, homeschool is definitely more popular now than it used to be. It's more, more mainstream, I would say, more common. Uh, to include among secular people, and so, I mean, we've, we've attended communities where there are folks that are, let's say, Christians in name only, and they come and they sign the faith statement, but, uh, you know, their kids may not bring their Bible or really participate, you know, just sit there quietly while that stuff's going on because cause they're there for the academics. And so uh, I guess I say all that to say um, <laughs> this might sound, this is just understand what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> There are worldly kids in homeschool groups, you know. Um, there, there are worldly kids in churches. Absolutely. In youth groups. There are worldly families in churches. Right. There are Christian families not going to churches. Like, there's, I don't know, I think it's just too simplistic of an argument to be very helpful. Right. Well, and uh, what was I going to say? Man, I had something, and, and it just, boop, never went. Okay, doesn't matter. Um, so do you, so I, I might just skip this one. Do you have any concerns that we might be isolating instead of insulating? No, I think we just discussed that, right? Okay. Yeah, no, no concerns. And I, now as our, as our children get older, I mean, there, there are going to be more things that come up. I mean, it's not like we have this all figured out, right? You know? So I, I think with each sort of developmental phase stage whatever that kids go through i mean you you've got to you got to take a look at at, at what's best you know and w- we as parents have to be discerning you know i, I just thought of what i was going to say because we I, I meant to mention this earlier you know early on when we first started homeschooling again i i knew weird homeschool kids growing up in fact <laughs> i mean we've joked about it before i don't know this might rub some people the wrong way but you know jean skirts and, and all that <laughs> stuff right or guys with their polo shirts tucked in their jeans, but they're not wearing a belt. Or or wearing a braided belt. Wearing a braided belt. And they belt. definitely are wearing white New Balance white shoes. White New Balance shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so... Uh, oh, man. Like, CC needs to have a uh, dress like a homeschooler day. <laughs> there definitely be some people that how, are like... How, how have they not thought of that? They're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they... Um, so in our house, we have a thing, it's HSD. It's kind of like a, it's a verbal prompting. It stands for homeschool dweeb. <laughs> when the kids start to do something dweeby, we're like, HSD. And so <laughs> all that to be said, uh, I mean, I was kind of sensitive to the idea of like, oh man, are my kids going to be weird at first? But as I started thinking about it, it's like, man, I, I did, I, well, most of my school career in public school, I knew plenty of weird kids. That's probably because weird kids are the product of weird parents. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, there, there are weird kids and weird families everywhere. I mean, you can't, you can't get away from, from, from weird. But I guess coming back to this idea of insulating, isolating. Um, so just like your kid can be weird if you're weird. Uh, if your kid, I mean, if your, your child is... Uh, the I'm gonna say the product of is exposed to divorce or adultery or bad language or alcohol abuse. Uh, if your homeschool kid is exposed to those things, which again, 
we know families where some of that stuff is going on, yeah, then it's going to be in the homeschool community in some form or the other, or some of right. the manifestations of that, I suppose. Like you can't be involved in any group of people and be insulated from, quote, the world, even if you're in M. Night Shyamalan's village. Right. Well, and, and it's like the argument that people make about not coming to church because of all the hypocrites. And it's like, yes, there are hypocrites in church, just like every other. Right. But these people still go to Walmart. <laughs> yeah. Like, are you still... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you still go to Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't go to Walmart because of all the hypocrites. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. All right. So what are your thoughts on the phrase to be in the world, not of the world? Well, I don't know. What's the chapter and verse on that one? <laughs> well, funny you should ask that. Uh, my follow-up question is, are Christian kids in Christian education in the world? Which I yes. think right, we've discussed that. Okay, so in the world, not of the world. Um, it's kind of like what we discussed in the past, where we, we, you know, I think I asked you the question: What are some things that people think in the Bible are in the Bible that aren't? And what was the other one I asked? There are things that uh, people think are in the Bible but aren't. Yeah, but then there's things that are are in the Bible, but like people don't realize. Well, anyways, so th- this is in or the Bible. Or things that people misquote. Yeah, but I mean, this is something like um, I'd mentioned before: like, the greatest commands. We think about those two together, right? But many people, well. Oh yeah, yeah. In in the Old Testament, they're they're separated by a few chapters. Correct. And so I think this is this is similar where uh, these are being put together, but they're not found any place together naturally, at least yeah. as far as I know. And so John fifteen nineteen is one of the places. Of course, these are these are Jesus's words. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as it is as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So I think this is part of the uh, in or out of the world part. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, here's another passage. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world are who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. And so I think you can see where with these two passages, we can we can see where you get this idea of being in the world, but not not of the world you're being set apart you're being holy sanctified right i mean you know since paul says here if you think that you can get away from all this well okay you'd have to go out of the world mm-hmm. and that that option is not on the table right so i mean if we're, if we're in the world okay so let's not be like them and, and you know i mean it's almost one of these things where uh like like these 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 concepts can coexist, right? Obviously, you can be in the world but not of the world. So there is this thing where you do have to be set apart. I mean, that's what holy, sanctified. That's what these words mean. In fact, when we go back to the story of Esther, when Haman was looking to, uh, you know, go after the Jews, one of his accusations when he went before Xerxes is, "There's this people amongst your people who set themselves apart and behave differently." Yeah. Right. And so, um. I mean, I guess if, if by homeschooling we are setting ourselves apart, uh, guilty as charged, but we're certainly yeah. not not in the world. Right. Okay. I mean, you're, you're still in the military. Your kids still play sports. You go to the doctor. Right. You, your wife likes Starbucks. <laughs> right. Like. Certainly. Um, okay. So, and this is something I posed to him because... One of the things that Josh mentioned 
was like, he, he mentioned this and he ended up kind of walking it back a little bit, but he's like, you know, he's like, they would send a kid out in the field with a slingshot and tell him to go figure it out. And it's like, well, obviously they didn't tell him to go figure it out. Like there was, there was obviously <laughs> yeah. some apprenticeship, mentorship, education that was going on. Yeah. Right. Like I think of the chosen where it's like, well, how did, how did we learn to fish? Well, we just watched dad. Right. And so, um, there wasn't any of this just sending them out there to figure it out. But, you know, as we're discussing it, one of the things I mentioned to him was like, how would this have been different if Joseph or David, they're out tending their sheep, but they had Twitter? Yeah. Right? So my question yeah. is, how does the modern era different from biblical times? So not trying to make excuses, but is technology a factor? Technology is a factor to the extent that its purpose is to speed us up. Okay. So... You know, it's like, you know, if you have a, a really localized cancer, you know, like a stage one type of thing, you know, it's it's like those cells are really just starting to, to pop up, but they haven't they haven't like impaired anything yet. They're, they're just there. Mm -hmm. And it's it's it seems to be slow progressing or maybe not progressing. That's a way different clinical situation than if you have, you know, something that that's, you know, really aggressive. Mm -hmm. And and I think that. The whole, the whole point, I mean, okay, I can dig a hole with my hands. Right. I can dig a deep hole with my hands, but it might cost me my fingernails mm -hmm. and a few days. Yeah. So I have a shovel, and, you know, and stuff like that to, to speed me up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's, all, that's all well and good. But then there are some things that speed us up. I mean, so, uh, like, obviously, like, speed is, is not, like... Um, more it, it's an amoral thing, mm -hmm. but I, I think that when it comes to some of the technology that's prevalent among kids, it's speeding up things that maybe shouldn't be sped up. Right. Like I don't know exposure to sexually explicit stuff. Yeah. Because you know, on down the road, being exposed to things I don't know in the confines of a committed marriage mm -hmm. is is all well and good but i can tell you exactly what my friends and the the kids around me would have been doing with instant access to anything in the world mm -hmm. you know when when i was in middle school i can tell you exactly what it was yeah and like i don't really since i don't have a teenager in the house like i don't maybe i'm not um I, I can't I can't cite a specific specific example of that, but you know, like being a teacher, like I hear about things. I hear about the kinds of things that kids are getting into. Um, it's, it seems to be having a particularly negative effect on girls, mm -hmm. teenage girls. Like I just saw where over the course of the pandemic, the uh, at least the attempted suicide rate among teenage girls in the United States is up by fifty one percent. Really? Yeah, that is significant because it's. You know, girls attempt. Wait, you said attempted suicide, or it's it's at, it's at least attempted. I I don't know if it's like actual, okay. like all the way, you know, yeah, through like achieved mm -hmm. suicide, but it, but at least attempted is up fifty one percent, and that's so so it's like it's it's so it it it's it speeds us up, but speed can be disorienting. Yeah, maybe that's a good way of put it, putting it. Speed can be disorienting. Well, I, I would agree. I think speed is absolutely a factor because, uh, you know, 
you think about the idea of things going viral. Uh, yeah, typically, yeah. typically, when you when you come across a virus, it's by chance, and it's it's going to take it's it, they're few and far between. Perhaps I don't know. Versus technology, so so if if Satan is a virus, historically, you had fewer chances of 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 running across him. Maybe I don't know. Not necessarily. My point is that the technology seems to give him like central access to you in a lot of ways, yeah. and, and and really again. I think it was uh, Joe Rogan had a guy on was talking about this. Like technology has absolutely sped things up and created more time for things. Um, I mean, but it's also consumed a lot of that time. Well, well I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about like, you know, modern, you know, smartphone stuff. Right. But I would say that the time that it frees up. So again, you can order a plane ticket on your, the, the device you have in your pocket where before it might've taken you half a day to go to the travel agent and buy it. So now what are you doing with that time? Probably on Instagram. Probably. And so, um, you know, I think, like, again, the the time is absolutely a factor. And so, and I think the thing about it, too, again, with this, keeping with this virus theme here, or medic, yeah. And Josh should appreciate this. He and I are both medics. But one of the things we learn in medical course is, like, um, everything is poisonous. It's just a matter of dose. Yeah. Um, So... You know, a cup of coffee has like, I don't know, a couple hundred milligrams of caffeine in it. But if you inject, and, and, and that's fine. In fact, in many cases, it's beneficial. But if you, if you ingest one teaspoon of pure caffeine, which is like a gram, it'll kill you, you know? And Man. so I think, I think yeah, that's that, crazy. Like the technology can be the same way. Like if we are properly dosing our technology and using it productively, I mean, there are absolutely drugs that under no circumstance are beneficial, right? Right. But but like like certain drugs, technology if if dosed properly can be beneficial. I think that the thing is that we have so many people that I mean they're addicts. And if and if all you're doing is sitting and watching sheep and you got this blinky screen in front of you, I mean again I, I just I'm inclined to believe that it would be a different story. A. B, here's something else I thought about because um I mean you think about how how the how the word the gospel spread you know one of the things i tell the kids downstairs is uh it's interesting when we study paul's missionary journeys everywhere he went there were already christians there hmm. you know um and i think that's because we, we read in, in the passages prior to that where because of people like paul all the christians were fleeing jerusalem you know the uh, the diaspora uh, a diaspora of sorts yeah and also when the church broke out on on pentecost that's what i'm talking you know, about yeah i mean even before the the persecution happened okay yeah you know, <clears throat> because there were so many different language groups represented. Clearly, they had, they had come, you know, to Jerusalem for the feast, and you know, they went back home and they they took the word with them. And I guess what I'm saying is, I certainly do not want to limit the ability of the gospel to spread to technology. But something occurred to me the other day when we look at this <coughs> issue with like censorship on social media and how people have a tendency to tell you, well, uh, it's a business, it's a private business. Like if they don't want you to talk about that stuff on there, they they have a right to to say that as if, and you know, and they'll cite like, I mean, look at these bakeries and, and gay wedding cakes and all that. And it's like, that's what you want to do. You want to compare what is effectively the town square to a bakery. Right. I think what that is the equivalent of doing is, uh, so here's where I'm going with this. When we talk about technology, cause we said before technology, isn't just something with batteries and wires, right? Like the, right. Ab- the abacus was technology. 
So Gutenberg invents the printing press. What's the first thing that they print? The Bible. The Bible, right? And so I don't know how much the spread of Christianity spread because of that, but how would it have been different if Gutenberg didn't let you print anything but the Bible? Hmm. Yeah. Like people probably would have had a problem with that. Yeah, yeah, and or what if it was the other way around? So. What if it was the other way around? What if, what if Gutenberg was an atheist and he wouldn't let you print the Bible using the printing press? Right. Or if or if you made your own as a competitor and you figured out a way because he was your competitor to say that he printed bad stuff and should be shut down. Right. Well, well, what do we have? What what would we be forced to rely on if we didn't have a printing press? Word of mouth or scribes. Yeah. Right? Cuz that's how that's how the gospel was Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh what's the word I'm looking for? was copied or uh recreated in in the past, right? Yeah. And so um I guess what I'm saying here, what am I saying here? So to suggest I I I think that techno- technology is absolutely a factor because um I mean, again, like, look at what our kids are dealing with, right? We're right, yeah. So the original question was, like, how are things to are things today different from when, say, David was tending sheep? And one of the answers to that is the technology that we have access to, that children have access to, could perhaps be having the kind of effect on them that would, that could potentially prevent them from things that God would have for them. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if David, you know, were busy tweeting mm-hmm. from out in the field, right? he, he may have been eaten by the lion. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and so what we do know, like, I mean, and speaking of drugs, like the earlier that people get hooked, the worse. Cause when, when a developing brain is like encounters chemicals, you know, it it can you know inhibit that that development and we also know that a lot of the technology that's out there today and you know apps are specifically designed to hook kids specifically like that they're actually engineered to oh yeah like to target continuous um, continuous scrolling and all these things right yeah, yeah it's like the slot machine effect right yeah well i guess my point maybe is maybe this is a better way to articulate it we see this a lot today where people will hold 17th century people to 21st century standards. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think in this case, it's almost like in this argument, we're doing the opposite. We're holding 21st century people to a first century standard. Mm, yeah. When, when we're dealing with two completely different things. And if we look at different, if we look at other areas throughout history where there was this huge, uh, benchmark and changes of technology, I don't, I don't think we'd make the same argument. And so I think that's part of the reason that this is just not a, uh, it's not a good argument now because, again, I think I think the technology absolutely matters. Right. And so I guess taking all this back to education, regardless of how we educate our children, we've got to think about like what good things to promote mm-hmm. within our families and, and what things need to be dosed. Yeah. And which things need to be completely avoided. Right. Right. And I mean, man, maybe that's that's pretty that's actually that's better yeah because it goes back to this idea of uh consider it pure joy my brothers right like if we're if our children are not experiencing hardship and we want to make sure that they 
have an understanding of what suffering can be like, uh, like you said, we are probably more suitable for dosing that than other folks are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would argue. Yeah. Not, I mean, not that there aren't other adults in my kids' <laughs> lives who I would trust that entrust that to necessarily. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the the small group thing, like you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Like the larger the group, the harder it is to. I mean, could you imagine a doctor, you know, like simultaneously diagnosing a room full of patients? No. And like giving the same dose to all the patients who happen to be in the room by virtue of their being there. Right. It's like, hey, like, let me just get a whole bunch of 12-year-olds and they definitely need the same dose of Benadryl. Right. All right, next question. Uh, got two, ma- two more. What type of schooling was Jesus and the apostles the product of? Man, I, I wish I knew more about that. I, you know, there are just things that I've, I, I've come across secondhand. You know, I, like I don't have... I, I don't know if I've done a whole lot of scholarly reading on that topic unless I did some back in college and and I forget, but I've heard people talk about it, like about the, I guess, like Beth Midrash mm-hmm. system right? and the fact that, you know, boys were in that maybe until they were 12 and then the ones who were, who showed promise were, you know, given further training and, and became rabbis. But I mean... I wouldn't say that I'm a reliable source on that. Yeah. I think when you watch The Chosen, they do a kind of a good job of explaining that as well. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, I, I haven't done a lot as well. Yeah. I guess I haven't done a lot of scholarly reading on that either. I know I've, I've taught lessons in the past where I discussed some of this stuff. Um, in fact, The Bronze Bow, I've, I've mentioned this book before. And yeah, I, I need to read that. Yep. Uh, I, th- I think that Misty and Ellie have read it. Have they? It's, yeah, they at least started it. It's a great book, and they, they go into a lot of that because one of the characters is one of these young men who is to go on to be a rabbi while the other one is just a blacksmith, right? Yeah. Um, but that all that to say, I think even for the young men who would just go into a trade, uh, or, well, so for, for both of them, but to include the guys that were just going to a trade, that, that early co- education, the education common to all, and then, of course, when they go off to be rabbis, it seems like it's more akin to uh, a private Jewish education or home-centered education, um, but it, it's certainly not a product of the state. It was, you know, uh, at the very, maybe maybe community education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess my thought with that is like, if it's good enough for the apostles and Jesus, uh, because all by all indications, like, like this is the education system Jesus went through, then it's good enough for us. And and I guess part of what, again, I'm not saying that he's saying this exactly, but you know, one of the things that I think, I don't know that he said this outright, but it, it kind of seemed like part of what Josh's argument was, is that our society seems to determine that, that the training up of your child is complete at 18, where historically it was like 12 or 13. Um, and I don't, yeah, you know, I'm not sure that that's a, a correct um, understanding because, I mean, it's not like, so So let's say that their schooling was done at 12. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they were, you know, they pinned some shekels to their, you know, <laughs> shirt, their tunic and like patted them on the rear and wished them best of luck. Right. You know, like that's like kind of like you were saying with the bronze bow, like, you know, there'd be an apprenticeship. Right. And, you know. 
I don't know how it worked out or if we even know how it worked out, you know, typically necessarily. But, you know, if you're apprenticed to say your dad, who's a carpenter, you're probably still living at home. Mm -hmm. Or even if you go off to live with an uncle or something who does something, you know, in a neighboring village or often, I don't know, you know, often Judea somewhere else. Like you're still not out of the home mm-hmm. per se. Yeah. If if you are apprenticed to to someone. Right. A- a- anyway, I I don't see any any sense from anywhere that like adolescents were on their own and and living outside of family and community authority. Right. Like I I don't know where that idea would come from. Okay. Unless there's a historical source that I've just completely. Uh, floundered on yeah it's possible it is <laughs> uh okay last question um so what is the application of romans 12 1 and 2 to this conversation so therefore i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god this is your spiritual act of worship conform no longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, I mean, yeah, I would say that that applies to every aspect of parenting. Mm-hmm. We've got to be aware that there's a pattern of the world as it pertains to parenting and that we need to recognize it and not just assume that the way that people do it in general is necessarily the right way or the best way or God's way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, now that doesn't mean that, oh, Hey, lots of people use public education. So that means it's wrong. That, that's not what it means. Right. It means that probably that the default mode for people is, um, uh, how, how, how do you say this? Laziness. Yeah. Laziness. And so, um, and there, there's no educational mode that necessarily, saves you from from having to to fight against that that human tendency so i think that we've got to be intentional about the way that we raise and educate our children and whatever resources we use to help us do that whether it's a a a homeschool community or a private school or a public school um church friends all of all of those things that that we have at our disposal We've got to be intentional about it because, yeah, I mean, so let's say that a kid's in a bad public school situation. It doesn't mean that if you pull them out and homeschool the kid that that's going to fix it right. necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's like there's not there aren't easy answers. You know, I, you know, I think you could look at the idea of homeschooling as opposed to public school and maybe even private school. So so the idea of, of homesteader education as opposed to sending your kids off to somebody else as just it's just naturally uh, non-conforming. I mean, there's probably something to that, but I Mm -hmm. think even if you're, you are using something outside of home center education, you, you just got to make sure that you're, that you aren't conforming, that you're being, being transformational with that transformative You're, you're transforming that thing. (laughs) I guess what, what, what I'm thinking of though is man, like, you have got to be involved. Parents have got to be. Ultimately, it is the parent's responsibility to train the child up. 
Again, you can send them off somewhere else to be educated, but it's your duty, your job. How about to supplement the education? Right. You, you've got to be involved. Yeah. You have to. And it's so easy to not. I mean, because they go, you go off to work, they go off to school, you meet back up at night, and, and man, like, you know, we and just. And then everybody's on their phones. Right. We get sucked into the things that we want to do. And uh, it's so easy for you to lose sight of the things that they're being taught. And so, you know, I guess what I'm thinking of here is in the military, there's this concept of what they call intrusive leadership. Um, and, and what that is, is like to have a pulse on your organization, like you, you have to go out and be with the men and see yeah. what they're doing, you know? And uh, it's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to push away from the desk and, and get out of the office and, and go out and, you know, get be cold and wet and tired because, <laughs> you know, you don't do that anymore, right? And get your equipment dirty. <laughs> um, but like uh hardship is where like strong bonds are formed and so i mm-hmm. think that applies to our children and so they come home and they don't want to do your home their homework and neither do you i get that but if you don't if you aren't getting involved then you're not going to know what they're being taught where they are you know emotionally spiritually and uh like it just can't be like that it just can't um and so i think you know, maybe maybe that's what being non-conforming looks like. If you're using again something other than home center, even well, even if you're using home center education, because again, it's easy to get to the long, end of a long day of what do we do? Latin and logic and science, and just skip Bible. You know. Yeah, that, that that's the thing that I was going to say. Like, don't skip, don't skip Bible. Like, r- regardless of of what educational supplements we use, like. We, we've got to be talking with our kids about the Bible and telling Bible stories and talking about the Lord. I mean, it's that whole Deuteronomy 6 thing, you know, when you when you lie down, when you rise, mm-hmm. as you walk along the way, like all of that. I mean, we, 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 get, to, we get to make normal for the kids. Yeah. Like we, we get to, like whatever habits and things that we do, like that that's going to be normal for the kids. And so... I don't know. Do you want thinking about God to be a normal thing for your kids? Okay, so if you do, you got you got to do it. Yeah. All right. So final thoughts. Final thoughts. I, I think that was final thought. Was that right there? Th- okay. that, that was my final thought. Well, I would like to attempt at least attempt to re- reproduce a rant that we did the first time. So let's see if I can do it. <laughs> um, Again, I think regardless of how you choose to educate your kids, there's some things that are going on in our culture currently when it pertains to public education that we absolutely need to be involved in. And also private education. And private education, correct. Yeah. Um, And, you know, maybe that situation is a little bit more straightforward because you can just withhold your funds, perhaps, uh, or or something. I I don't know. Either way, it's not good. And so, uh, you know, as a homeschooler, I'm still paying taxes. And so that money is going to these local schools where they're teaching these things like critical race theory and all that other stuff. And so, um, we should care. Like we have to care about our kids' education. We should be caring. We should care about the education of other kids. And, uh, you know, we need to be in these school board meetings and, and, and town halls and things like that to, to ensure that, that those things aren't happening. Uh, because it is, it's frustrating whether your children are being, your children are being exposed to to it or not. Um, because what it, what it, it ends up with is kids that are not being trained up in the way that they should go. And, uh, you know, that does not sit right with God. I, yeah, I would I say, uh, 
and I guess that's it. Yeah. You want to close this out? Sure. Lord, uh, I pray that we would uh, do like it, it says in, in um, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we wouldn't conform uh, to the pattern of the world, but we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I, I pray that, that you would help us to be that way um, in our families and, and with our families and for our families. And um, Lord, help us, uh, give us wisdom as we try to bring our children up in the way that they should go. And Lord, I pray that um, however many people listen to this, whether regardless of if they have kids or not, or or if they, they lean towards public or private or homeschooling, I, I pray that um, that people would be encouraged to to seek you and to recognize that there's a, a difference between you and, and, and what the world has to offer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.